This is God's holy word, 1 Corinthians 6, uh, the first 11 verses, and this should be on page 954 of your pew Bibles. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord, Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. Thus far, uh, the reading of God's holy word, and we'll turn now in the back of our uh, Psalter hymnal uh, to Heidelberg Catechism, questions 72 through 74. Lord's Day 27 on page 884. So the second of two Lord's Days uh, given over to the understanding uh, properly the sacrament of baptism. And we'll read this uh, responsively. Does this outward washing with water itself wash away sins? No, only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. Why then does the Holy Spirit call baptism the water of rebirth and the washing away of sins? God has good reason for these words. To begin with, he wants to teach us that the blood and spirit of Christ take away our sins just as water removes dirt from the body. But more importantly, he wants to assure us by this divine pledge and sign that we are as truly washed of our sins spiritually as our bodies are washed with water physically. Should infants also be baptized? Yes, infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people. And they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who works faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant, they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Well, children, you heard there uh, that you are, as you have been baptized, distinguished from other children. You're different. You're unique. You're growing up 
in the church. And we'll uh, talk a little bit about what that means and how that works today and why that is a blessing, a great kindness, as I'm sure most of the adults here who uh, were blessed to grow up in Christian homes can affirm. I want to look at these three questions, and I think they can roughly be summarized. First, how does baptism work? That's going to be our first point. Second, why does the Bible use such realistic language about baptism? We're going to talk about baptism as a sign and a seal, and then we're going to talk about the language that the scriptures use, which is what question 73 is putting before us. And third and finally, why do we baptize infants? Why do we baptize infants? Well, our catechism in the Reformed tradition uh, takes the sacraments very seriously. Um, this is a very rough measure. But if you, if you compare the Heidelberg Catechism, even to later Reformed catechisms, the Westminster Standards of about 80 years later, um, 14%, a very rough measure, of the questions of our Heidelberg Catechism, like one-seventh, are on the sacraments. That's a significant chunk. Um, it's bigger than the portion of later um, other catechisms, uh, contemporary catechisms, the New City Catechism brought up by a Redeemer in New York City. Um, It tells us that baptism is important. It also tells us what was important in the 16th century at the time of the writing of this catechism. There's a context here which we want to be a little bit aware of. Uh, Two of the big issues that come up here is how does baptism work? Does the water itself regenerate, bring new birth? First, and then the language of scripture around that question, hotly debated with Roman Catholics and Lutherans. And then secondarily, Uh, Should we baptize infant believers born to covenant parents? And obviously that was hotly debated with the Anabaptist church. And the Reformed church was in the middle of sort of these two extremes of different ways of understanding baptism. And so uh, this is an informative uh, topic, set of topics here for us this morning. So last week we learned that baptism is a sign and a seal of the washing of Christ's blood and spirit. Um, Even here we see uh, this idea that that the Spirit works faith, right? The Spirit is working in baptism, not uh, the priest or pastor, not the water. It is the Spirit, and baptism signifies, and and by the word signification, we want to think of of ideas like teaches us, explains us, um, reminds us. Parents, as you're teaching your children uh, a new topic, sometimes you'll give them an example, right? A model. Uh, uh, an analogy. It works kind of like this works, right? And that's what baptism is doing for us. It teaches us that Christ alone, remember last week it was repeated four times, in his one sacrifice on the cross, once and for all. And that it therefore assures us that this sacrifice, which we claim as a historical reality, touches me, is for me. It's not just in the abstract. And the catechism ties this Assurance of a once and for all sacrifice to comfort. Assurance. It's a central theme from question one on. And it raises two key questions, as I've already mentioned. How does baptism work and who should be uh, baptized? Um, these two things are related because oftentimes we uh, wrongly believe that we reason we baptize infants is because the water of baptism washes away their sins. And if they don't get baptized, they'll die um, and go 
potentially to, to judgment, right? That we need to, to save them from their sins as early as possible. That is the rationale you will find in some uh, Roman Catholic and Lutheran circles where they teach uh, baptismal regeneration. Some of these churches still practice emergency baptisms in hospitals uh, when there are infants who are in mortal uh, danger. Our catechism teaches us that there is a different relationship between these two realities. We don't baptize babies because we believe that water itself saves them. We baptize babies based on the command of Christ and the nature of the covenant promise. That's a very significant difference. um, And it's presented very well by the author of our catechism. So first I want to begin, how does baptism work? What does the water, the rite itself, actually do? What does it actually do? Our catechism asks, does the outward washing with water itself wash away sins? And it says, no, only Jesus Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit cleanse us from all sins. The the thing that washes our sins away is not present. Other than the Spirit. The Spirit is present, but is not visible. It's not tangible in the sacrament. The sacrament is a, a tangible reality that points us to the invisible reality. And so once you say that baptism is important and significant, and we believe it is important and significant, that it takes place in the gathered church, it is an easy step to take this too far and to invest too much significance in the rite itself. And in fact, the church did this from the earliest time of the apostles. We know, for instance, that St. Augustine, among many others, delayed his baptism. Though he was born to a devout Christian mother, Monica, Um, And the reason he delayed his baptism until adulthood is that he thought that baptism itself was the once and for all way to wash away deadly sins, mortal sins, sins that could kill us and send us to judgment. The thinking went that if I got baptized and then messed up and sinned again, my baptism would only wash away the sins that had actually been committed before it happened. And you see that this error involved investing the power to remove sins in the water and in the moment of baptism itself. Water that could only flow once in the believer's life. Well, if that's the case, I'm just going to wait right before I die and get washed once and for all. There was clearly no question of repeated baptisms at this time, just to note, right? The idea of being rebaptized is totally ruled out by this logic and rationale of the early church. This never would have happened. And the failure here was to recognize that not the water itself, but the blood and spirit of Christ is what washed away sins. The failure is to properly conceive and understand this relationship between the outward sign and the spiritual reality that it signifies. The water and the rite point beyond itself to an eternal once and for all sacrifice. Christ's blood atones for all our sins. No repeated offering of Christ, no repeated washing of baptismal water is necessary to forgive us all our sins. And indeed, we see this error of the early church being taken even further in the medieval church. And um, it built upon this belief as a foundation that there was a certain authority of the baptizing church to control the rites of salvation. This is what some people call, uh, as a technical term, sacerdotalism. A, a priestly religion where the priestly caste controls the essence, the means of salvation. If the sacraments themselves grant God's grace, instead of merely being signs and seals of it, and if the church dispensed the only valid sacraments, you can only get it at one place, well, this granted the church remarkable authority. It's kind of like, uh, you know, the, uh, the only authorized charging cable for your iPhone, right? You have to buy from Apple. 
and it costs like $30 instead of the third-party one that's going to break after a few months or Apple's going to give you this message use, not using an, an authorized charge. And that gives them authority. That gives them pricing power. The church had sort of a pricing power of control over the people. Now, the church does have authority. But it is ministerial authority. It is based upon uh, the faithful ministry of God's word and gospel. And this authority grew and developed the medieval authority into a hierarchy such that one bishop in one city claimed to be the source of all sacramental powers. And if you weren't in agreement with him and his office, not the word of God, but him personally, your sacraments were invalid. This was enshrined in the teaching that the sacraments deliver God's grace. And the quote, the phrase here, which was popularized and enshrined was, from the working of the work, by doing the thing, it does the thing. Ex opere operato. And this is the view that our catechism is opposing in this question. So it's important to understand that there's a context here, right? The outward washing of the water itself takes away sins. And at the time of the Reformation, Protestants looking back to the teaching of Augustine and to the Fathers and to the teaching of Scriptures, and they saw there that the sacraments weren't rites which in themselves saved, that they were pointers and seals of an invisible spiritual reality which actually saved. A sign is not the thing it signifies. There has to be a relationship between sign and thing signified. A seal is not the promise it conveys. You don't get a, a letter or an edict from a king with a seal on it and say, Oh, I got a new seal. Right? You want to open it up and see what's inside. This doesn't render the sacraments meaningless, but it does render them something different than magical, which was uh, the error that had arisen. They are visible promises sharing the power of the word of God to communicate the gospel. The same message, but with this added power to seal to a particular individual the general promise of the gospel. Christ died for sinners, says the preached word. Christ died for this sinner, says the water and the bread and the wine to a particular recipient. There's still an authority vested in the church to administer the sacraments to appropriate recipients. My title in our church order is Minister of Word and Sacrament. Because these sacraments must accompany the Word. They don't work just by the washing of water. They reinforce and confirm the preached Word. And they don't just fly about randomly. So when the sacraments are administered by a minister of Word and Sacrament, the Word must also be preached. And that's why our tradition understands this office as uniting these two realities. I once was asked when I worked at a Christian nonprofit, someone called in and said, well, My friend's really excited about infant baptism. Can she do this at home in the bathtub? Is this good? You know, I didn't know a lot. I hadn't gone to seminary, but I knew this. Like, that's not a good idea. That's not what we're talking about here. It's a churchly blessing. Ecclesia means the called out ones. And that call is applied to particular people as they're incorporated into the body of Christ through the sacraments. So that's the first point. What is the effect? How do these sacraments work? The second point, why does the Bible use such realistic language about baptism? Notice that the, um, we have a, sort of a, a follow-up question here. How does it work? Is it just the washing of water? Well, if it's not just the washing of water, why then, why then are these texts that seem to think this? And this was a part of the back and forth. Uh, Protestants would say... The water itself doesn't save. Ex opere operato is not what the scriptures teach. They say, no, they do teach that. Look at Titus. Look at 1 Corinthians. 
The catechism has done this elsewhere. You remember on the question on justification, there's a follow-up question. How am I justified by faith? How am I justified by faith alone? Right? So the catechism is emphasizing the importance of this lesson. Uh, The Reformation was trying to undo a thousand years of church practice. That's a very slow process. Question 73 addresses this same matter by going directly at these proof texts. And uh, the Catechism is a, a useful sort of commentary on Scripture. We need to remember it as a resource in this way. And it's why it's useful as a parent or as an individual. When you read the Catechism at home, uh, one way to pray through this lesson, this week, if you want to reflect on it and improve this preached word, is, is to click on the footnotes. If you're using your phone, you can just click on them and the, the Scriptures pop up. It's a way to study the Scriptures and give you a framework for understanding and reading and applying the Bible. So 1 Titus 3 is one of these passages. For we ourselves, Paul writes to Titus, were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. You see, again, there's this ethical, moral instruction activity in the background here. He said, you were once horrible sinners, but He saved us. And here's the teaching of grace, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. You see how it's in parallel with God's mercy and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Those are the two things that baptism does. It washes, regenerates, and renews. Whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, virtually everyone recognizes that even though the word baptism is not used here, the apostle is talking about the baptismal reality, the entry saving point of a believer. And again, in this first generation of the church, mostly adult believers who had lived lives, dissolute lives outside of Christ. He saved us. Paul is emphasizing that salvation is of the Lord. We are saved by grace. We don't save ourselves. Not because of works done in righteousness. Grace alone through faith alone. And then this phrase, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Protestants don't deny that this is talking about baptism. It's reminding Titus of his baptism and his church and what it really signified and communicated to him. Baptism is a picture of God's grace. We are passive. He saves us. He washes us. The new birth accompanied by the Holy Spirit. Christ's one sacrifice. Through Christ. Through Christ. You see what it's doing? Being justified by His grace. Baptism is a picture of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ alone. What a beautiful thing. And Augustine uses the language a couple hundred years later to say that this is sacramental language. In the same way, and we'll get to it in coming weeks, when Jesus says, this is my body. He's not speaking literally. He's speaking sacramentally. And Jesus does this often. I'm the vine. I'm the good shepherd. I'm the gate. The sign and what it represents are united by God's promise and by faith that receives what is promised. So there's this outward sign, the invisible thing it represents, and 
God promises that when faith receives this outward sign, it also receives the invisible thing. That's God's promise. Don't doubt it. That's what Paul is saying here. Just as surely as you're washed by this water, so surely you're washed by the Spirit. I'm not sure if some of the Shemore children are old enough yet to be on, on dish duty, cleaning up the dishes after dinner, right? Plates get clean if they're done well, right? Dishes get clean. Maybe they go through a machine, maybe you do it by hand. But that thing is dirty. You wouldn't want to eat off of someone else's, a stranger's old dirty plate, right? But when it's clean, it's a new thing. It's a new reality. It's restored and renewed. In our text today, 1 Corinthians 6, like this other text from Titus, there's an ethical call to live the new life, live the new creation, grow up into Christ. He says, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? He's he's troubled by the fact that believers are are taking lawsuits to the courts, to the civil courts. He says, you're going to judge the world. You're going to judge the angels. How much more should you judge matters pertaining to this life? So he's rebuking them big time. This is a defeat. Why not suffer wrong? In the context of Corinthians, there's all sorts of crazy stuff going on, right? If you looked at their lives, you'd say, those people aren't Christians. Some people say, I've heard Christians talk this way before. Well, that man doesn't appear to me to be regenerate. Well, I don't know. I can't read anyone's heart whether or not they're regenerate. (laughs) We know a lot of regenerate people, all regenerate people, keep on sinning, right? But Paul is saying, this life is out of keeping with the new life, the new creation. And he emphasizes that with these warnings in the end. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Again, baptism, you were washed, is tied to justification. You are the recipient of God's saving work. Gospel, not law, sanctifies believers. That's the point of our catechism. Guilt, grace, gratitude. You want sinful believers to live lives of thanksgiving, transformed lives. Preach the gospel. Don't threaten them. Yeah, there's a warning here. But there's also a call to the promise of their new identity. Live out of your new identity. We are the judges. Start judging. (laughs) You're going to judge. Judge. Do it now. They have been made as saints. That word saint means holy. And he's talking to people who he's accusing of being unholy. But he's saying, you're not unholy. You're holy. You were washed. Christ made you something new. So then why do we baptize babies? Moving to the third point. Some people think the only reason to baptize babies would be to save them, to regenerate them. And that's understandable, but I believe it's incorrect. The the real reason is the covenant promise of God. We baptize covenant members at the command of Christ. So the question becomes, is this individual, is this person, this new baby, a member of the covenant? And it's clear from Genesis uh, to the end of the Bible in Revelation that children born to covenant members are born into the covenant. They are covenant members. They are included in God's covenant and people. They are particularly offered this generational promise. Uh, We don't presume anything about them. We don't know anything about them other than what God has promised about them. God has promised to save them. This promise is for you and for your children, Peter said, on the basis of the Old Testament. From the very first in the garden, the essence of the saving covenant has been about a child. 
The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Yes, that seed was Christ. But there were a lot of other seeds that were saved by that uh, serpent or by that uh, seed. An offspring, a line. It required faithful believers from Adam and Eve all the way up to Christ. And God promised and God delivered that line of faithful believers. It's not out of a view that the water itself does anything or for the sake of tradition, but for the sake of God's promise that we baptize babies. And I do think our, our baptismal form is really a beautiful teaching on that. And I look forward to revisiting it next week after we had it last week. The covenant community um, includes many people who may not grow up unto faith. And it does in the Bible too. In the Old Testament, Jacob and Esau, right? Um, Cain and Abel. And yet, and yet, they receive the covenant promise. Because it is theirs to reject. They're born into it. They receive those blessings. They bear the sign of faith that must be joined with faith. Kevin DeYoung in his commentary on the Catechism, which is quite good. I always like to recommend it. um, Gives some further arguments. Anyone who would deny the new covenant sign to children of believers needs to show why. He says, this is sort of the burden of proof argument, because for thousands of years, from Abraham to Christ, children, circumcised, baptized, were included in the covenant. A change in scripture would have been a radical change to God's saving covenant, and we don't see any New Testament evidence, as we do over uh, kosher food laws, or circumcision, or other aspects of the law. Household baptisms also are strongly suggestive. As for me and my house... Paul says, I did baptize the household of Stephanus. And the Philippian jailer says, he rejoiced along with his entire family that he had believed in God. The he there is a first person or third person singular. He rejoiced that he believed and his family was baptized. Children ought to obey in the Lord. And they can only obey in the Lord if they are members of the covenant community. If they've indeed been washed of their sins. Christ welcomed little children This was not a casual blessing in Mark chapter 10. In church history, within two centuries, evidence the church was practicing infant baptism. And there was no debate in the history of the church until we reached the 16th century. Those are just some some additional points uh, raised by DeYoung. The point here isn't that we we declare our, our exegetical and theological superiority over our Baptist brothers and sisters, whom we love and celebrate and welcome to worship here in this church. But it does introduce a different way of thinking about the people of God. And it's a biblical way of thinking. Understanding the covenant promise of God and not the the decision of our children is the foundation for this assembly of uh, believers. God's people are assembled here based on his covenant promise. And I do think it changes how we raise our children. From day one, guilt, grace, and gratitude are the pattern of the Christian life, daily repentance for a child. Is there any other motivation for good works, for obedience, than the gratitude for what God has done in Christ? Can we faithfully and persistently and consistently call our children to that gratitude if we and they don't know that they too are recipients of this saving grace? Let's pray. Merciful God in heaven, we thank you for your mercy to us. We were helpless as helpless as a a baby abandoned on the sidewalk. And you came to us and rescued us and saved us through the blood of Christ and the Holy Spirit. We thank you that you work this blessing, you signify it and seal it through baptism, and that as we grow up as children of the covenant, that we can celebrate and enjoy this blessing and look back and come to membership as adults 
communicant membership in a church where we say that we embrace a covenant pledge and promise from our Lord. Thank you for that gift and blessing. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.